And as you're seated, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as you turn to Acts chapter 1, uh, I've been meaning to preach a sermon on the ascension of Jesus for, uh, we've been here eight years. So for eight years, I've never done it. Uh, I think that's something of a failure on my part, and I'm kind of guessing that maybe by the end of this sermon, you might agree with that assessment. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, which we just confessed, we said that we believe that Jesus is God, that he was born as a true human man, that he was crucified, that he died and was buried, and then that he rose again from the dead. But the Apostles' Creed, which is the standard summary of the Christian faith, it doesn't stop at the resurrection, does it? It goes on. It says that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, and kids, ascended means that Jesus flew up into heaven, which is pretty cool, right? Uh, and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and that from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then after that, we confess our belief in the Holy Spirit and all the blessings of Jesus that we believe he brings to our daily life, our church family, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life with God that begins now, and then, of course, our own coming resurrection. And what the Creed is showing us, which is what it will learn from the Bible, is that the daily life that you and I now live with Jesus does not exist apart from Jesus ascending into heaven and taking his place as our Redeemer King. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how the daily life we live with Jesus happens as a result of the ascension. And I want to use it, talk about it kind of using the words of the Lord's Prayer, which I think Jesus has deeply connected to his ascension as king because he's connected it so deeply to his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Uh, so let's read our passage, let's pray, and then we'll consider Acts 1 through 11 under these three points. Thy kingdom come, that'll be verses 3 through 5. Thy will be done, verses 6 through 8. And then on earth as it is in heaven, verses 9 through 11. Uh, let's read now Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And oh, kids, by the way, when uh, he says in the first book, O Theophilus, that's, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. So Luke wrote Luke, and he wrote Acts. And that's who's writing here in chapter 1. Let's hear God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Thus, Father, reading of what I think can truly only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word which you have given to us to help us understand the blessings of Jesus's ascension and also the way in which his ascended kingdom appears in our lives today, uh, right now. And uh, Father, we we know, though, that uh, as powerful as this word is, that it will do us no good without your spirit. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit now would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe, receive, and live out of your word by faith. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this through Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, so in order to sort of enter into the ascension and how it impacts us today, I want us to understand and maybe even feel why the ascension should matter to us. And verse 3 is very helpful for this. It says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Think about everything that's contained in the phrase, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died. He was buried. Mary Magdalene and Mary, Jesus' mother, and John the disciple heard Jesus cry out, It is finished, and die on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried Jesus in the tomb with their own hands. They all saw the Son blotted out by God's judgment when Jesus entered into hell on the cross for our sins. And they all knew that the temple curtain, which at that time had divided God from his people, had been torn in two by God himself. And after all of this, Jesus appears to them and shows them with many proofs, as Luke says, that he's alive. They touch his hands and his side. Mary hugs him. And then what happens? Maybe not what you'd expect. He doesn't recreate the world. He doesn't end death. He doesn't purify the world from sin and make all the bad things go away. Instead, Jesus takes up his teaching role again, spending 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. And notice that this wasn't even like something like a 40-day retreat. Verse 6 shows us that the disciples came together to learn from Jesus, which means they weren't always together, right? They'd come together and they'd separate during those 40 days. Certainly they'd need to eat and sleep. Probably some of them would need to work and they definitely need to take care of their families. This shows a normalcy to their life that had to feel just weird after all of these amazing wonders, right? Maybe a little like how it feels weird to me when after every Easter we celebrate Jesus' death and victory over hell and victory over death, and then Monday comes and it's all kind of the same. But yet it's not exactly the same, is it? As we read in verses 4 through 5, part of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is reminding his disciples of his promise to send the Holy Spirit who is going to empower them for ministry. We're going to talk about that more in, our, in a second here. But before we do that, I just want to pause here and sort of make two initial comments about what all of this shows us about Jesus' kingdom and what's going to become more clear about Jesus' kingdom as Acts goes on. 
And for the first comment, you need to know that the kingdom of God was not a new thing Jesus was teaching the disciples here in Acts chapter 1. This was one of the main subjects of Jesus' ministry. In the Gospels, before he was crucified, Jesus told parables that are called, by the Gospel writers, parables of the kingdom. He taught us the Lord's Prayer, which he calls in Luke's Gospel, the prayer of the kingdom. Uh, and where we're told, taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? He even started off his most famous sermon, Jesus did, with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Which means that uh, when Jesus is talking to them about the kingdom of God, he's telling them now about how, as the crucified and risen king, he's going to convict sinners, call them to repentance, forgive them, adopt them, heal them, reconcile them, and teach them. He's, he's telling them how everything he preached about before he died, rose, is now going to come to pass in their life. And that connects then to the second thing I want to say, which is, as far as Jesus is concerned, clearly in this passage, this shows that his redemptive kingdom comes in the ordinariness of our fallen life. After all, Jesus doesn't stop fallen life, does he? Instead, he re-enters the fallen life of his people as the risen king of glory to show us how he's going to bring his glorious grace into our broken lives, into the mess, into the sadness, into the misery. Jesus rises to re-enter where we are. And that's much of what Jesus meant when he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Lord, come here into my life. Bring your redemptive grace and your redemptive rule into this mess. As I am, as it is right now, come to me. Come to us as the resurrected king. Now that said, we also need to recognize that this idea of Jesus ruling and reigning and bringing grace and brokenness can be hard for us to get our minds around, and it was hard for the disciples to get their minds around too. Because after all, Jesus has been raised from the dead after tearing the curtain in two and blotting out the sun. He's won! So why wait? And isn't that what the disciples are basically asking Jesus in verse 6? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, okay, Jesus, we got it. The kingdom is where you exercise your redemptive rule. It's where you deal with sin. It's where you save your people. But now we have all that covered. Like, isn't it time for angel armies and fire and glory? Isn't it time for sickness and death and brokenness and harmed relationships and temptation? Isn't it time for all that to go away? That's what they're asking. It's not a selfish question. It's a question that you and I wonder about, me, at least two or three times a week. Isn't now the time when Jesus comes and everything gets right again? But Jesus, as he so often does during his uh, earthly ministry, he shifts the question and so shifts the focus. And this brings us to our second point. So the disciples are asking a question that's familiar to us. It's a question about timing. Is now the time when you're going to fix everything? Lord, is now when you're going to act? When are you going to return? But Jesus tells us 
that question just isn't going to be very helpful to us, not because it's sinful or anything like that, but because he's just not going to answer it. It's not for you to know times or seasons that my father has fixed by his own authority. That's not a question that gets an answer. The question of when God will or won't act isn't one that Jesus is going to answer for us, both because it isn't our business, but also, I think, because the answer would actually get in the way of what Jesus wants us to do as those who are under his rule and are receiving his redemptive kingdom in the brokenness of our lives. And we can see that purpose for us in verse 8. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When Jesus talks about receiving power, what we usually think of is the ability to do miracles, like heal the sick and raise the dead and all the things that you and I cannot do. Now, sometimes that word does mean the ability to do miracles, but most of the time, and especially in contexts where people are giving a, being given a task by a king, the word means the ability to accomplish orders. Like, for instance, when I was growing up, it was common for my friend's parents to put the older sibling in charge of the younger ones while they were gone. That was giving power to the older sibling. I'm placing you in charge. You have my authority, and you have my authority to do what they tell you. <laughs> right? That's what giving authority means. You have authority. So what, that's what Jesus means here. When I ascend into heaven, I'll send you the Holy Spirit so that you will have the power to do my will as your king. You see, Jesus isn't calling us to focus on his plans, which he will not share. Instead, he's calling us to focus on his purpose, which he not only shares, but empowers by his spirit. And that purpose is actually very specific, isn't it? We're called to be Jesus's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what Jesus means by that is actually just spelled out in the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, when Jesus calls the church to be witnesses, we see, we see that it means telling the world about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, we're called to tell the world that he was born as a true human man, that he lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was raised for our justification, and that he ascended into heaven where he rules as the Redeemer King who was promised by God in the Old Testament. That's part of what being a witness means. You can see that in Acts. You can see that in the Gospels. But we also see it means even more than that, too. It also means learning how to live in grace and love and unity that Jesus' kingdom brings, as Jesus brings a diverse group of people to himself. In Acts, the church actually follows this pattern that Jesus, is, Jesus gives them. It starts off in Jerusalem, then it moves to Judea, the surrounding area, and then to Samaria, and then to Rome. And then after each expansion, it, as it goes further in the earth, to the ends of the earth, the church has to learn how to live kingdom life with people who are very different than the ones who were there at first. They have to learn how to live with Romans and Greeks, with Greek-speaking Jews who support Rome and kind of like Roman authority and Hebrew-speaking Jewish zealots who want to overthrow Rome and hate it. They have to learn how to act lovingly 
to those who haven't uh, treated them well historically in the past. Like Jewish slaves receiving Roman soldiers. Or you can even see in Jesus' ministry, uh, some of the females who funded Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke are part of Herod's household. How difficult would that have been? This is Herod's, I think, second sister. She's part of Jesus' disciples. Here are people who were murdered by Herod. Part of being a gospel witness is not only talking about Jesus or learning to live with Jesus as he lives with his people, the diverse, different people that he calls into his kingdom. And this is also part of the church's witness and acts. And it's also what Jesus gives us the power to do through his Holy Spirit. He gives us the power to welcome, to forgive, to repent, and to love in his name, as well as giving us the power to tell others who he is and what he's done. And let me just add one more thing here. The reason why, or at least one of the reasons why, Jesus makes sure that we know that it's the Holy Spirit who empowers all of this is because, and here's a Trinitarian mystery for you, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowered Jesus' ministry. You see, what Jesus is saying is, after I ascend, I'm calling on you to continue my mission as witnesses to the gospel of the kingdom. And I'm giving you the power to do that by sending you the same person who gave me the power to save you from sin and to rise from the dead, the Holy Spirit. And this is part of what Jesus wants us to mean when we pray, thy will be done after praying, thy kingdom come. Lord, let your kingdom of redemption show up in my life and in the life of my family and friends, and then give me the power to do what you've called me to do. Empower me to be your witness and to live as a witness of your grace with the people whom you have, who you are calling to yourself in your church. And that brings us then to our last point from verses 9 through 11. This is where Jesus actually ascends in heaven. Let's read it again. Uh, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Uh, so just a couple of brief things here. First, uh, Jesus getting covered by a cloud means more than that Jesus was raised on a partly sunny day. Uh, in the Old Testament, God's kingship and clouds go together. So when people see God in heaven, there's often a cloud representing his kingly glory. When God descends on Mount Sinai as the king, he descends in cloud. When he leads Israel as their shepherd, which is a common euphemism for king in the Bible. He uses a cloud, a pillar of cloud. So when Jesus ascends into heaven and is taken from them with a cloud, not hidden by a cloud, but taken up with a cloud, the biblical symbolism, I think, is actually pretty clear. Jesus has taken the throne and has started his redemptive reign. His gospel kingdom is now coming. Which leads me to a second point, which isn't 
super major, but I think it's fun to point out how shocking must it have been to see Jesus float up into the sky and then get taken away by a cloud. I mean, he just finishes talking and then up, he's gone. Like kids, that's what happens. He stops talking, he flies up, a cloud takes him, disappears. Uh, I think there's some, there's some humor there when we're told that after Jesus ascends, these two angels who are the two men dressed in white, they ask like, hey, why are you staring up into heaven? Oh, what's happening? Why are you, what's going on? You know, like, they have to have been at least smirking when they ask the question. We should laugh when we read that. Sometimes we take the Bible a little too seriously. There's humor there. Hey, what's so amazing? <laughs> this guy just flies up into heaven. The third point, though, and the one I want to end on is this. The angels tell us that Jesus then will return in the same way he went up, and that is suddenly, unexpectedly, and as the king. Now notice, though, the disciples don't ask the angels now, well, when's that going to be? See, they've learned their lesson. That isn't a question that's going to get an answer. Instead, what is it that they do? We didn't read it, but what they do is they go off and they immediately start trying to live as witnesses for Jesus by picking a new apostle, patiently waiting for Pentecost, and then bearing witnesses, bearing witness to Jesus. And Pentecost is what we're going to talk about next week. I want us to learn the same lesson that the disciples learned at the end of their dissension. In the ordinariness of life, in the sin and brokenness of this world and of our lives, Jesus is reigning as the redemptive king who is bringing his kingdom into our lives so that we can experience the gospel that empowers repentance and renews forgiveness and adopts sinners and everything else that Jesus does today so that in the ordinariness of our life, we can experience the extraordinary grace of Christ as we speak to others about him and live with one another in his name. And I want us to see that Jesus is doing all of this by giving us the Holy Spirit who actually empowers us to obey him and to do this. Which is all to say, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we can be assured that Jesus' answer will be a heavenly amen because he tells us, here is my spirit so that my reign in heaven can be felt by you and enacted by you on earth. So let's rejoice in the ascension and let's commit ourselves to Jesus' mission knowing that through his spirit he will empower us to be his witnesses in the ordinariness of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus has ascended and reigns in heaven as our redemptive king. Uh, thank you that he brings his powerful grace into the ordinariness and brokenness of our lives. Thank you that he sent his spirit to empower us to be witnesses to his gospel. Uh, thank you that because of Jesus, we can trust that in our lives, your gracious heavenly will for us can and will be worked out here on earth. Uh, Father, help us to live out of these wonderful promises and to encourage one another with these truths so that our lives individually and as a congregation would uh, more and more bring glory to our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen.